Hey everyone, on today's episode, I first want to give a shout out to all of our international listeners. Uh, you may know this or not, but I, uh, Anawa Medical Clinic doesn't necessarily provide a server to host these podcasts, so I host it on my own podcasting form. Uh, my, my podcasting form of, uh, my podcasting site of choice is Podbean. I do not get paid to say that, but uh, they've been a good partner. And uh, so they give me a map of where everyone's downloaded it. And there's uh, one listener in the United Kingdom uh, who's a, a frequent listener. So uh, cheers, mate. Oh, I don't know if that's offensive or not. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, blimey. Okay, so uh, when we, we have other international listeners, though, uh, there seem to be a lot of Russian listeners to the Primary Care Podcast. Now, you may, you may think that they're just Russian bots, um, you know, trying to learn English or maybe get up-to-date medical news. Uh, I think they're actually real doctors. So for all my uh, Russian colleagues out there, uh, oh, welcome podcast. I have something prepared for you. Okay, uh, let me pull it up. Privet vits muyem ruskim shlushtishtayem dobro pok alakta ke podcast prichnoi midishtikkoi pomoshki. All right. Uh, so... To either the Russian bots or the Russian physicians out there, uh, welcome. And uh, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. 15 minutes one. Because I'm a candy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I wanted to thank my uh, youngest daughter there for helping me with the introduction. If you couldn't understand her, she said 15 minutes long because I want candy. Uh, good job, Lydia. Uh, good job. Okay, so we today are talking about a couple of different things. Uh, I wanted to try something fun. I'm going to look at articles that have been released within the last month and try to get some really up-to-date research on a couple of different topics. So we're going to kind of jump around. It's not going to be a, it's going to be a hodgepodge of things, so uh, we'll get into it. The first uh, study actually today is a little bit uh, of an interesting one. Uh, it has to do more with, uh, it's, this is from Nature, uh, specifically nature.com, uh, the subclass of human behavior. Uh, this article is in October 21st of this year. It's called Socially Transmitted Placebo Effects. Um, it's a very interesting article. Um, I had to actually interlibrary loan this to be able to see it because I saw this uh, was linked uh, on a Watch a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so I, I wanted to read the whole article. It's really interesting. So there, we know that patients' expectations of their care help guide placebo response. So we know that the more that a patient believes in a placebo, the better off they get a placebo effect, the more, the more it's effective. But this study tried to look at the, the and, the, and the, the, the article is the socially transmitted placebo effect. So could a doctor's expectations about how the treatment will work affect the patient's placebo response? Um, so if a provider is very enthusiastic about uh, the expectation that a treatment will help, will it be a more effective placebo? So uh, basically what they did in this study is uh, they looked at, uh, they gave all these patients, uh, the single blind parallel group experiment, 24 doctor and patient pairs. So basically they took a group of actors and you know gave them the role of being a doctor. 
okay, and unsuspecting quote unquote patients or people in this study, uh, they they assigned uh, they they led the doctors to believe these these actors to believe that this inert cream, completely placebo cream, had analgesic properties, and they paired it with lower pain stimulation intensities. Okay, so then they took these analgesic cream and they controlled it and they 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 compared it to a control cream okay so they gave these they gave these two different placebos okay one that they thought the doctors thought was an analgesic cream and one they thought was a control cream okay so then they gave the patients the same thermal pain right so the doctor gave the same patient the same thermal pain one they the doctor applied an analgesic cream and the other or they thought it was an analgesic cream but it was really just placebo and on the other arm, they did a uh, control cream, okay? So they were both placebo, same exact thing, but the doctors thought that they were giving an analgesic cream, okay? Everyone with me? Okay, so sorry that was a long explanation. But patients' pain ratings and their skin conductance response were significantly lower with the placebo analgesic cream that the, that the doctors thought were analgesic creams. So uh, they showed significantly less pain. Um, then there were two other studies that controlled for habituation effect and using higher pain stimulus intensities uh, yielded the exact same results. And these were in trials of almost 100 people each. So I think it's just important to note that our what we as clinicians say and think is going to happen actually has positive outcomes on our patient's ability to get better. So if we, you know, prescribe a medication and we don't use positive, uh, you know, language towards it, or we're not we're not overly optimistic about the treatment when we are prescribing it or discussing the treatment plan with our patients, it will likely have a significantly negative impact on the potential for therapeutic benefit. So a really interesting study um, about the effect of our optimism on treatments and how the placebo effect of these treatments uh, will likely affect patients. So interesting. Uh, obviously, more studies needed. There's only, you know, N of less than 300 in all of these kind of trials that they did. So a, a lot more studies needed on this topic, but a pretty well-designed study. So the second uh, piece of uh, the second study I wanted to talk about today was uh, should we be using shorter courses of antibiotics for treatment of strep throat? Now, you know, for Classically, we've always been taught you need at least 10-day course of, you know, oral penicillin or amoxicillin or, or other antibiotics that are treating um, streptococcal pharyngitis to cure not only the pharyngitis and, and tonsillitis caused by group A strep, but to prevent the negative consequences, specifically rheumatic fever. So this is looking at the British Medical Journal in October 4th. Um, it was an Randomized, open-label controlled study, investigators compared the European standard regimen of 1,000 milligrams of penicillin V three times a day with for 10 days with a course of 800 milligrams four times a day for five days. Enrollment required having at least three of the four center criteria plus a positive rapid streptococcal test. The primary outcome was non-inferiority. Um, so in, clean, in clearing clinical infection at five to seven days after antibiotic treatment and secondary outcomes were relapse and complications like rheumatic fever and glomerulonephritis. So what do we find in the per protocol analysis of the 400 patients? So N is kind of small here. That's important to know. Clinical cure was occurred in 89.6% of people in the five-day group versus 93.3% people, uh, 93.3 of people in the 10-day group. Bacteriologic clearance uh, 
monitored by, uh, by bacterial cultures was 80% in the five-day group and 90% in the 10-day group. Now, in, the, in both groups, uh, in the first group, the five-day group, only eight patients had relapse at one month. In the 10-day group, seven patients had relapses in one month. Uh, no patients had complications in the five-day group, and four patients had complications in the 10-day group. So they're uh, basically, uh, even in even the follow-up, uh, cases of new tonsillitis, only six cases in the five-day group and 13 cases in the 10-day group. So their shorter courses were clearly non-inferior based on the studies. So I think that this is a pretty, pretty uh, reassuring regimen that this regimen is really good at so far clearing um, or a shorter course seems to be good, just as good at clearing um, the symptomatic cure, which is the, what they count as the clinical cure. And despite having lower rates of bacteriological clearance uh, on culture, 10% lower um, in the five-day group, there was only one more case of relapse at one month, no new case, less case, fewer cases, sorry, of tonsillitis at three months, and a lot fewer complications. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So because you're getting higher doses of the medication, the five, the four day, uh, the four times a day instead of the three times a day um, increased dose, uh, the higher dose led to an earlier time of relief of symptoms in the five-day group as well. So not only were patients feeling better earlier, but they had fewer complications. Uh, specifically, we talked about those adverse events, uh, zero in the five-day group and four in the 10-day group. Uh, the adverse events were basically diarrhea, nausea, and uh, vulvovaginal dysfunction and, and, and yeast infections. So basically, uh, you're getting fewer days of antibiotics, so you're having fewer days of complications of antibiotics. Now, why is this seemingly more relevant now? It seems to be in, in most first world countries, We've had a greatly decreased rates uh, incidence of rheumatic fever. Now, probably this is due to several different factors, but the main reasons are it's 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 you know vanishingly rare that people get this rheumatic fever now because the rheumatologic or rheumatogenetic rheumogenetic I can't pronounce that word the the strains that cause rheumatic heart fever have pretty much disappeared out of the first world countries. Um, now, why is this the case? Well, we don't know. Probably because we've been so good at treating uh, streptococcal infections. And with access to medical care in these developed countries, we've seemingly stamped out these really terrible strains. So obviously, historically, we've always worried about rheumatic heart fever with streptococcal infections, but it's it's been extremely unlikely in developed countries uh, catching strains uh, locally here that have had any impact on developing rheumatic fever. Uh, we certainly should see untreated strep infections, not only in kids, but also in adults, because not everybody uh, comes into the doctor with sore throat. And we do know that people clear streptococcal tonsillitis and pharyngitis on their own in many cases. And so we have not seen any increased rates of rheumatic heart disease, etc. So I think that knowing that we can cure this streptococcal infection with fewer days of antibiotics, uh, I think is is pretty helpful knowledge. Now, what does this mean in your world? Certainly, you could just do penicillin V, 800 milligrams, five, uh, four, four, days, four times a day for five days. Uh, certainly, that would be appropriate. Uh, I think this also lends itself to maybe doing uh, three times a day amoxicillin 875 uh, with a five-day course instead um, of doing the 875 BID times 10 days. 
I think that's I think that's reasonable to do. Uh, clearly, this shows that shorter but more frequent doses of penicillin-based antibiotics uh, is uh, non-inferior to longer courses, and it's so hard to get people to take all 10 days anyways that uh, I think that this is uh, good information not only for uh, patients to know, but also I think for providers to know that there is evidence to say that shorter courses are okay. So go forth, family practitioners and, and primary care doctors, knowing that uh, not only does your response to treatment, your perceived optimism to treatment, impact your patient's placebo response, but it's also important to know that shorter courses of antibiotics for streptococcal pharyngitis isn't necessarily a bad thing. So how do we do today? Enjoy what you're listening to? Any suggestions on topics for the podcast or recommendations of articles? please send them to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. That's all one word, primarycarepod at gmail.com. We'll also take any comments, questions, or concerns about the episode. If you want me to read your comment or question on the next episode, I can certainly throw them in. Please include whether you want that comment or question to be anonymous or credited with your name. Please check the episode details for links for free CME. And so we'll wrap up another episode saying thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. This has been Dr. Mark List reminding you, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great day.